information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Today's host is Puneet Aliwal, and I have with me an internationally renowned expert on the vertigo and dizziness, that's Robert Gurkhoff. Dr. Robert Gurkhoff um, has internationally trained uh, for his medical school in Munich, London, and Durham, that's Duke University. He had his dissertation in immunology, a PhD on diagnosis and therapy of Meniere's disease. He is a professor of otolaryngology uh, since 2017 at the University of Munich, and his scientific landmarks include the introduction of endolymphatic high drops imaging for clinical practice, discovery of FEMP frequency tuning in Meniere's disease, introduction of terminology, hydropic ear disease, discovery of amiodarone associated bilateral vestibulopathy, and he's also the member of the Guideline Committee on Vestibular Disorders for German-speaking countries. Welcome, Dr. Gurkhoff. It's such a pleasure to have you. Good evening. It's my pleasure as well. So, as you know, it was about 75 years ago that Meniere's was associated with hydropic disease. Um, what exactly is Meniere's disease? Meniere's disease is a, um, is a disorder characterized primarily by uh, endolymphatic high drops. Um, and it's important to use the term disease and not syndrome, for example, because the, the term of a disease always encompasses two things, the, the typical symptoms plus the underlying pathology. So whereas, whereas the syndrome only describes the symptoms, which are typical, the, the term Meniere's disease, or uh, as I will explain later, even better, hydropic ear disease, means the symptoms of auditory and vestibular dysfunction in the setting of endolymphatic hydrops. And um, what are the typical symptoms of Meniere's disease? Well, um, the, the typical symptoms have been known for quite a long time. And uh, one of the most important features is the simultaneous appearance of auditory and vestibular symptoms. So at the same time during an attack, for example, the patient experiences the, the oral pressure or tinnitus or hearing loss and vestibular uh, dysfunction, which is a, a vertigo attack usually. The vertigo attacks uh, last uh, uh, from um, usually from uh, typically from 20 minutes to, to two days. Uh, and also another important uh, feature is uh, that there is the attacks and additionally chronic progressive loss of the of the auditory and vestibular functions over time over the years and decades of the natural history of the uh, disorder. Um, so what is primarily the difference between chronic symptoms versus Meniere's um, disease attacks? During the attacks, um, it's, it's a very uh, disturbing and distressing state of, of catastrophe, uh, more or less. Um, there is an acute loss of, of vestibular function of, of one side with, um, with a spontaneous nystagmus uh, of the eyes and a severe feeling of, of, of vertigo, also of nausea, often vomiting, and this can go on for, for many hours. Um, and then usually once the attack has, uh, has slowed down, has stopped, uh, 
the, the, the functions return almost to normal most of the time, but there is always a little damage which stays. Um, so over the years and, and, and decades, um, the hearing loss uh, is, is chronically progressing and also the, the vestibular function very slowly, but um, this is also a typical sign of, of Meniere's disease. Are there any other uh, non-typical manifestations um, for Meniere's disease? The fluctuating low frequency uh, sensory neural hearing loss, which means that the patient experiences repeated episodes of low frequency hearing loss, which, uh, which also recover in between the, the episodes in the short term, but in the long term, um, uh, the, the hearing is, is, is progressively uh, worsening. So this is one, one less typical manifestation of hydropic ear disease. So monosymptomatic, just auditory symptoms. And there's also another uh, monosymptomatic form. Uh, so this is the vestibular uh, hydropic ear disease, which means that the patient is experiencing purely vestibular symptoms, acute attack with spontaneous nystagmus and vertigo during the attack, but does not have uh, ear symptoms at the same time during the attack. And this is uh, very frequent in, in, the, in the secondary um, form of Meniere's disease. Um, in this case, uh, a patient uh, suffers uh, uh, either a pre-existing condition or an infection or trauma to a severe trauma to to one ear, and he suffers a permanent profound hearing loss. And because of this uh, big disturbance of the inner ear, endolymphatic hydrops is building up over the years. And then at a later time point, he experiences uh, newly, uh, newly appearing vertigo attacks, but without auditory symptoms, simply because the, the cochlear part of the ear is already dead. So there is already no auditory function left. So he does not, have, does not have fluctuations of the hearing, but only fluctuations of the vestibular symptom. Do we see this uh, more, more commonly in people that is advanced or is that can be the first presenting symptom of the patient as well? This can also um, often be the first uh, presenting symptoms. Um, and uh, even today uh, in, in clinical practice, I, I frequently encounter the situation where uh, this patient is, is not diagnosed uh, uh, because uh, his, his doctors have not made the connection between his pre-existing severe hearing loss and his now newly appearing vestibular symptoms. Um, so this is, this is quite, quite frequent actually and uh, still today uh, overlooked uh, too often. That's very interesting to know. Are there any clinical diagnostic criteria that needs to be met for Meniere's disease? Um, yes, there are. There are several sets of diagnostic criteria by different uh, organizations um, published. Uh, the best criteria and uh, the most widely accepted worldwide um, is the, the, the AAO HNS criteria from 1995, which is the state-of-the-art standard. They state that vertical attacks uh, at least two uh, vertigo attacks longer than 20 minutes, plus audiometrically documented hearing loss in the low frequency or in, in all frequencies or flat hearing loss, and also another uh, hearings, uh, ear symptom like tinnitus or, or oral um, fullness. Um, so recently there was another publication of a different set of criteria by the Borani Society, but um, 
overall, they cannot be recommended for clinical practice or for research uh, because of uh, severe shortcomings. Um, they, um, uh, for example, claim that uh, endophytic hydrops has nothing to do with Meniere's disease. Uh, they also ignore the, the nystagmus during the uh, attacks as a diagnostic sign, which is, of course, extremely important. Um, and also, uh, they, they, they ignore the documented hearing loss, the automatically documented hearing loss for a diagnosis of probable Meniere's disease. Also, the diagnostic criteria are, are insufficient and imprecise. So uh, I re recommend to use the 1995 criteria um, as, uh, in clinical practice. Well, that's good to know. Now, in the, I'm going to bring you back to the old question where I was asking you about the non-typical uh, manifestations. You mentioned something about secondary form of Meniere's. So uh, what is the difference between a primary versus a secondary form of Meniere's disease? Is, is that a pathological um, difference between the two? Mm -hmm. So um, the difference is um, in the, uh, lies in the presentation of, of the pathology. So um, the, the typical idiopathic uh, Meniere's disease is, is, is the same as the, what we call primary uh, hydropic ear disease, uh, which is basically a situation where a patient who is otherwise completely healthy, has had no, no previous problems with his ear um, and uh, starts to develop these uh, spontaneous uh, episodes of hearing loss and, and, and vertigo. Um, on the other hand, the secondary hydropic ear disease, um, in this situation, uh, the patient has a previous um, disturbance of, of his inner ear. This can be of many different etiologies. This can be uh, an infection like a labyrinthitis or meningitis. This can be a, a, um, a lasting, a sudden a sensory neural hearing loss, a profound sensory neural hearing loss, which he has suffered uh, many years uh, previously. And uh, in these situations, the, the homeostasis of the inner ear is already disturbed by this primary insult. Um, and, uh, and this uh, is the reason why uh, endolymphatic hydrops develops. And then later on, um, uh, also the, the vestibular symptoms uh, appear. Now, you did mention um, to stick with the 1995 guidelines, um, especially because they were in Baroness Society guidelines that did not pay emphasis on endolymphatic high drops. Are they both synonymous terms? Um, no, because um, uh, the... Um, the disease encompasses both symptoms plus pathology and uh, endolymphatic hydrops is the, the underlying pathology of the disease. Um, it's basically the, the common feature, the, the, the unifying, defining feature of this disorder. Um, that's, that's the role that endolymphatic hydrops uh, plays. Um, although, of course, there are different etiologies which may lead to endolymphatic hydrops. This we have already known for a long time. Uh, and also there's many different pathophysiologic features which result from endolymphatic hydrops. For example, the, the low frequency hearing loss corresponding to the hydrops starting in the apex of the cochlea um, or the change of the uh, acoustic and mechanical properties of the cochlea, the change in the autoacoustic emission operating point uh, and, and, and many others. So the endolymphatic hydrops is at the center of the uh, pathophysiology in Meniere's disease. And um, does 
Does the disease progress over time? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, one has to be careful when, um, when counseling the patients uh, about the, the progression or the prognosis because it's very um, individual and cannot be well um, predicted uh, as an average number uh, which can be used. One can say that over the course of 10 years of disease course, the hearing loss is on average about 50 uh, decibels. Uh, but this is just the average and uh, it can be far below or far, uh, far above that. Um, uh, also, the uh, vestibular function, the, the real sensory vestibular function seems to be lost quite late in the disease course. Um, and also uh, the bilateral appearance of symptoms uh, is more often with uh, a longer disease course. Um, on, on average, if you watch the patients for 30 years, for example, about half of the patients start to experience symptoms on the other side. So there's definitely a, a progressive uh, course of the disease. And um, when, like you mentioned, the patients can come with any form of uh, presenting symptom, uh, what are the chief features uh, in, in case you are a rehab specialist? Uh, sometimes, like you mentioned, people don't get diagnosed. What would you suggest a rehab specialist to keep in mind regarding these patient symptoms? Mm -hmm. So there, there are a few hints. For example, if a patient reports that he has a, that he has a long-standing hearing loss, especially if his hearing loss is on one side only or on one side predominantly, that's really a, a very important clue. Uh, it, it often points towards the inner ear and the and the endolymphatic high drops being being the the cause of his of his vertigo problems. Um, and another feature is the the fluctuating nature of the symptoms over time, coming and going. Um, this this is also very typical uh, for for hydropic ear disease. Now. Um... There is this wide presentation of like, um, despite having a idiopathic or maybe a pre previous etiology to the condition. Now, is there any research on why is this disease so variable? Um, to express my question better, what I'm trying to ask is when we get to see the patients, patients can be presenting with acute vertigo attacks and some of them are not uh, in this wide spectrum of uh, Meniere's disease. Is there any research? Why is this disease so variable in nature? Um, well, there are attempts uh, concerning this question, but our knowledge on this point is very limited. Um, that's mainly due to the, the, the lack of, of knowledge and understanding concerning the precise mechanism within the inner ear about the fluid homeostasis or the shifting of fluids or the, the um, development and, and, and speed of development or change of the, of the hydropic dilatation of the membranes of the inner ear. Um, this in humans, uh, above all, we, we cannot study so far in, 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 living, in living patients. It's just the problem that the inner ear is not accessible uh, in, in living uh, um, 
in living patients because it's so well hidden uh, in, in the temporal bone and, and, and so small. Um, so there is very little that we can offer us in terms of counseling or, or prediction um, to the patient or let's say to predict what patient, which patient, what patient uh, will have these symptoms and what patient will have other symptoms uh, in the future, unfortunately. You led uh, me to the next section for our podcast. That is, what clinical tests or diagnostic tools are being used for Meniere's disease diagnosis at this time? So, um, as it has many, many, many manifestations and, and concerns the, the inner ear as a whole, which means auditory and vestibular function, there's, there's a lot of tests which can be useful um, to, to work up the patient with a suspicion of hydropic ear disease. Uh, first of all, the, the caloric test um, and on video nest thermography um, is very important. Um, it, it shows in, in many patients, not all of them, but a large uh, part of the patients, it shows a decreased function. It's uh, per se, it is uh, non-specific, but um, it's very important to use the caloric test in combination with the head impulse test because there's this typical pattern of, of hydropic ear disease, which is a preserved gain on the head impulse test in combination with the reduced uh, caloric response, which most likely comes from the fact that the sensory function itself is, is still preserved in these patients, um, but the, the mechanical problem of the uh, hydrops in the inner ear makes the caloric function uh, less, less, um, less strong. So this is the caloric test. Um, and then the, the, the HIT, the head impulse test or video head impulse test is also a non-specific test. It just shows a dysfunction of, of the semicircular canal. Um, it is usually preserved in Meniere's patients. Only later in the disease course, usually there is a, a disturbance to be found here. There's also recent studies by Curtois and Manzari who, who even have found a pathologically high function. So an overshooting function more or less of the sensitivity of the head impulse test um, due to the endolymphatic hydrops. Um, with, the, with the VAMP test, the vestibular evoked myogenic uh, potentials, there is a mixed picture in Meniere's disease. The VAMP response may be normal. It may be reduced or absent or even increased. Um, um, in, in 2016, uh, we have uh, done a study on, on certain Meniere's disease patients and uh, uh, provided the proof for the first time that the VAMPs are actually altered in their response in, in Meniere's disease patients. But this means that their stimulus frequency optimum is shifted from the low frequencies towards the higher frequencies. This means that in Meniere's disease patients, you get the optimal VAMP response when you stimulate the inner ear with higher frequencies, as opposed to healthy individuals where the optimal VAMP response is uh, achieved by a lower stimulus uh, frequency. So this is uh, an effect which is, which is there, but in, in, in clinical diagnostic studies, it has been shown that the sensitivity and specificity is only moderate for this test. So it is a diagnostic clue, but not a proof. Um, so of these, these three tests, I would say that the, the caloric test is the most robust um, test and, and should always be used uh, and ideally in combination with the head impulse test. 
And uh, what would you prefer, like a video head and pulse test or uh, the clinical uh, head and pulse test is also equally good? Well, um, my experience for these diagnostic purposes, the head and pulse test performed manually by an experienced examiner is just as valuable as the video head and pulse test um, with very few uh, exceptions. Um, there is a lot of uh, uh, importance in, in the details how to perform the test to make it really unpredictable for the patient um, in order to see the small cicades um, which, which might be lost uh, during the head movements, the so-called covert cicades. Uh, but in clinical practice, uh, it's, it's, it's important to, to do the head impulse test. And if you have the video head impulses, that, that's a nice add-on. You get numbers, you can visualize the result, you can explain it to the patient and so on. But for real clinical practice, uh, the most important is to do the manual uh, head impulse test. Yeah, that's very good to know. Um, regarding um, the ability to test the inner ear function, uh, you had previously mentioned it's very hard to do it in a living uh, being. Uh, recently, use of MRI has been um, done for patients with Meniere's disease. Could you discuss that a little bit more with us? Mm -hmm. This has been the probably the greatest innovation uh, in the last 20 years uh, in the field of, of vertigo and neurotology. Uh, it's the only way to, to ascertain the diagnosis in, in, in difficult cases. Uh, in 2007, um, by Shinji Naganawa and Totsumu Nakashima's group in, in Japan, it was first uh, published that NLFETC hydrops can be visualized by clinical MRI equipment. And uh, shortly after that, in 2008, our group uh, introduced this technique in Europe. Uh, in the beginning, the, the images of the inner ear were, were good because intratrepanic contrast uh, was applied to the, to the ear, which gives a high signal intensity and, and very high quality images. Uh, later on, also intravenous contrast, which is uh, just more practical and, and, and uh, more widely used in clinical practice, uh, also produced um, successful images of endolymphatic hydrops. So it's a very useful uh, way to confirm the diagnosis in clinical practice. Um, there is one, one caveat um, uh, which one has to keep in mind. Uh, in the very early, in the first manifestation of the symptoms, for example, if the patient has symptoms only for a few months or only a few attacks so far, um, it may be difficult to, to visualize the endolymphatic hydrops because at this stage of the disease, it is still very mild. It, it is known to progress um, slowly with the years of the disease course. So um, in these cases, if there is no clear evidence of hydrops, uh, one is not wiser than before. But um, in, in the other cases, uh, it's a very uh, easy and, 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 and strong test. If it shows the high drops, then your diagnosis is certain. And this is very useful and very valuable uh, for the management of the patients in many, many um, instances. So today it is used all over the world in many, many countries. Uh, and we have uh, established a large network and experiences are just, uh, just uh, positive with this new technique. And are there any other tests uh, specifically for endolymphatic uh, hydro? 
Uh, well, yes, um, there are um, other tests. Uh, for example, there is the, the Klokov test, um, which, um, which uh, is performed by um, giving the patient uh, a dose of, of a diuretic, uh, osmotic diuretic, like uh, mannitol, for example, and then audiometry is performed before and after. And the diuretic has the effect of reducing the volume of the fluid in the, in the endolymphatic space. And therefore it improves significantly uh, or even normalizes the hearing of the patient. Um, so uh, this is a very, very uh, powerful test. It also puts a little stress on the patient. Uh, and that's the main reason why it is not widely used in clinical praxis, uh, at least uh, in Germany today. Mm, there is also the electrocochleography, which is also a very sensitive test, especially in the early phase uh, of the disease. Um, it can detect, uh, functionally detect endolymphatic high drops, um, even in the, in the early, very early disease course. Um, we have also experience uh, with uh, this uh, technique and uh, it, is, it, is, it is a high, high accuracy and, and, and a good uh, sensitivity. Um, it just uh, takes uh, some experience and, and equipment and, and a little bit of time to do the proper investigation. Uh, but these, these two are, are really useful tests uh, if, for example, if MRI is not available. So, um, Dr. Gurkov, when you see a patient who presents to you with, you suspect uh, they meet the clinical criteria for Meniere's disease, would you say that you would do caloric testing, um, a video head impulse test or a head, manual head impulse test, MRI, and if you have the ability to do um, electrocochleography, or you would just manage your diagnosis just from the caloric testing and the head impulse test. Or, so my okay. basic question is, do we mm -hmm. do MRI for almost all patients that are walking through the clinic? Very good patient, uh, very good question. Um, in the early years, uh, this is what we had done. Uh, we performed MRI in, in many different uh, patients. Um, but uh, very soon, uh, we made a very clear finding that there is uh, the, the history and, and the, the clinical presentation. If the clinical presentation is typical, which means the recurring episodes of audio vestibular symptoms at the same time, plus low frequency hearing loss in audiometry, which you always have to perform the audiometry. And, uh, uh, and, and this, is, this is enough for establishing the diagnosis with certainty because uh, we have made the experience, if we perform MRI in these patients, in 100% of the cases, we always find the endolymphatic high drops. So after a while, we stop doing the MRI in these patients because it's just, uh, it just does not add significant information. Um, so in the typical cases, really the, the audiometry, the history taking, the calorics, the head impulse test really, really is enough. Um, another story is the, the more difficult cases where it's not so typical and uh, in, these, in these patients, uh, electrocochleography, for example, is very useful. And also, of course, the, the MRI. So uh, when you discuss more difficult cases, um, are they the cases that are presenting late to us or they are 
um, that case which has become a question for uh, doing our differential diagnosis? Uh, both can be possible. For example, the, the, the patient I've mentioned earlier who has long-standing hearing loss and now develops vertigo episodes. And many times he, he gets different diagnoses by different doctors. And in these cases, it's very important to perform the MRI. Um, but also patients who present newly to us but have, let's say, less typical symptoms. For example, episodes of vertigo where you have no proof of spontaneous nystagmus because no doctor has seen it in the patient, um, or the episodes are very short, let's say maybe just five minutes long. So if you only stick to your clinical diagnostic criteria in these patients, you cannot make a correct diagnosis. Um, but uh, our experience over the last 10 years has shown that it's well possible that there is uh, hydropic ear disease, which produces also short episodes uh, uh, of vertigo. So um, uh, both, both is possible. And uh, one can say that the less typical the clinical presentation is, um, uh, the more useful it is to, to do an MRI and look for the hydrops. Do you foresee any future diagnostic um tools that are coming up for Meniere's disease? Uh, well, uh, that's a good question. Um, so far, I'm not aware of any groundbreaking uh, innovations. Um, there is a lot of work uh, going on with uh, mechanical measurements, acoustic impedance measurements, wideband tympanometry, um, so to say. And um, this method also is able to detect uh, uh, a mechanical uh, dysfunction of the um, of the fluid compartments of the inner ear by measuring middle ear impedance, um, but so far uh, it confirms the the role of the pathophysiology, but it has not yield yielded an, an additional um, diagnostic accuracy. Uh, any any test uh, will have to be uh, measured against. Um, the, the detection of high drops, of course, because this is the, the direct proof of the underlying pathology. And um, so we have now this tool uh, to diagnose patients, but also to develop new tests by, by checking if it really detects what it should detect. Yeah. So um, because all these tools play such a strong role, what do you think um, is differential diagnosis a very important uh, criteria because it is often uh, very closely linked to migraine. So it'd be great if uh, you can mention something about the importance of uh, differential diagnosis in this population. Um, yes, there, there is a, it's important to, to look closely to the symptoms for a differential diagnosis. Um, one, one important uh, uh, finding we have, we have obtained in a, in a large study, the largest study published uh, on, on certain Meniere's disease patients, um, by asking them specifically and, 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 and prospectively about their symptoms, that Meniere's patients, 30% uh, of them have, have also headache symptoms. Um, but on the other hand, this is not related to, to, to migraine, because the prevalence of migraine in the Meniere's patients group is not increased above the average of the healthy uh, general uh, population. Um, so 
headache is, is a rather non-specific finding uh, which occurs in, in many states of acute distress and uh, i mean yes attack definitely is such a such a state of acute distress um nevertheless uh for making the differential diagnosis it's it's very important to look for spontaneous nystagmus during the attacks many times this is not possible at the beginning because the patient suffers the attack at home then comes to the doctor and the attack is already gone. Um, but uh, it, uh, it, uh, it, it can be useful uh, and I often recommend that uh, to patients that they record their eyes by themselves uh, using, for example, a smartphone during the attack and then bring it to the consultation. And many times one can see the spontaneous nystagmus during the attack, which is, which is a very important differentiating sign between Meniere's disease and, and, and other disorders. Um, so this is, this is very, very useful. Also another important uh, uh, differential diagnosis uh, is somatoform or psychogenic uh, uh, disorders, which also uh, can cause uh, vertigo or dizziness symptoms. And for this also the, the functional tests, the audiometry, and also the, uh, the nystagmus during the attack is, is quite important. Uh, I just uh, remember now a recent patient who I've seen for the first time, but she told me that uh, 15 years ago, she was established with the diagnosis of Meniere's disease, but her audiogram was perfectly normal. So uh, in these cases, usually there can be another cause found. Um, it is extremely unlikely that uh, the auditory function is, is perfectly normal during such a long time uh, in the setting of Meniere's disease. My question for you, because you mentioned about spontaneous nystagmus, is it um, any particular direction that you would uh, notice in this population? Is it portional, uh, vertical, or horizontal that one should keep in mind, or it can present in any way? Mm -hmm. um, we know today that it actually can present in any way. Um, nevertheless, for the, for the large majority of patients, it's a, it's a horizontal and uh, torsional uh, nystagmus, but mostly mostly horizontal. Um, but there are also reports um, of, of, of patients where the attack was recorded and the nystagmus was, was vertical, for example. So that's also possible, but, uh, but rather rare, quite rare uh, among many as patients. Does the direction of the nystagmus uh, depict anything for the uh, preponderance of the ear? Uh, yes, uh, but this question is not completely resolved uh, today. Um, usually, or most, most, uh, most often, the, the nystagmus that we see during the attack is, is the paralytic one. Although there are quite a few reports who have described um, uh, the, the contrary direction uh, of the nystagmus, so um, an excitatory uh, nystagmus, before this, or even a reversal of the nystagmus over time, after a few hours, for example, it, this is all possible. But um, the, the cornerstone, really, the typical finding is the, the paralytic nystagmus, horizontal and, um, and torsional, which means uh, a beating toward the, the, the healthy ear with, with a fast face. That was great information, Dr. Burkhoff. Um, what, now, moving towards uh, our next segment, that's interventions. Um, what is the current 
um, evidence from different trials for interventions in Meniere's disease. Okay, so this, this is a very large topic and uh, <laughs> we can only discuss uh, a few pearls uh, in our time. But um, there has not been so much news in, in, in recent years, uh, with one exception. Uh, and this exception is, is, is the landmark study about uh, a beta-histine, uh, which is, as far as I know, not, uh, not approved for medical use in the United States. But it has been used for a long time uh, for Meniere's disease. And in 2016, there was the publication of the BMED trial with 14 university centers performing this uh, uh, government-financed uh, randomized placebo-controlled trial um, in over 220 patients. So this is probably the highest quality therapeutic trial in the whole field of neurotology, uh, uh, or at least Meniere's disease ever performed. Um, and the results were... Uh, quite clear. It showed that beta-histine has absolutely no effect uh, on any of the symptoms or functions. Um, uh, this is the same for the regular dose and also for the, for the triple overdose or off-label high dose. Um, the, yes. <laughs> so moving on from that, um, there has been a lot of intertympanic use of the glucocorticoids as well. So do you do that in your clinical practice or is there a selected patient population that uh, will undergo that? Um, yes, uh, I use that uh, quite frequently in, in my practice. Although first I try uh, more, uh, um, uh, let's say, less invasive methods. There is uh, the diet uh, with... Uh, low low salt intake um, for example but uh, the local steroid uh, therapy uh, ha has a few advantages uh, it gives you a high concentration of the steroid in the inner ear um, and uh, uh, it, 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 it is so far the evidence is, is mixed uh, but uh, my experience and also that of uh, many other colleagues is, is very positive plus there is new developments uh, happening there um, uh, it's important also um, to keep in mind the proper technique of, of the inject, inje injection. For example, um, uh, it, it's, it's really best to inject the drug uh, with a fine needle. Um, I recommend the ultra-fine needle of, of 0.4 millimeters uh, diameter um, and not to use uh, a ventilation tube um, because this is something we have learned from our MRI studies. If you uh, make a hole in the tympanic membrane and then insert the drug, it will very fast uh, go out of the middle ear via the uh, eustachian tube. And therefore you have less, less concentration of the drug in the inner ear because it has just a short contact time. Um, so the, the, the technique is important. Um, and also there is, there is a new development uh, with a formulation of, of the drug, of the steroid, uh, within a, it's called a poloxamer gel, which remains in the inner ear for quite a while, hours and maybe days. Um, and most importantly, it gives uh, an effective dose to the inner ear over, over weeks. Uh, and this, this is a great breakthrough, but this drug is still in development, not yet approved by the medical agencies. But if, if it will be, will be first approved in USA, so you are lucky. <laughs> Um, so you did mention about dietary advice. That is the most common thing uh, we as therapists will also express. 
So uh, besides low salt diet, is there any specified um, advertised oatmeal products a plausible choice? Um, well, um, there is this uh, new development of these uh, specially processed uh, cereals. Um, they they are, have been shown to induce an anti-secretory factor in, in the plasma, um, but the, the evidence is mixed. Uh, so one trial found an effect, another one with similar quality did not find an effect. Um, so uh, in, in, in Germany, at least, uh, it's, it's not really used in, in clinical practice. I have no experience with that so far, but I think one can say it's, it's an option um, for, uh, as a contrary for the, for the salt, the effects of, of salt and water. Um, there's a strong and, and the traditional basis of evidence that shows that there is really um, an effect which, which is present. Um, there are early experiments in the 1920s, uh, which have shown that one can provoke a menias attack by, by making the patient uh, drink uh, excessive amounts of water and, and salt. Um, so th there really is a connection there. Also, there are Japanese studies which have actually measured the sodium intake of, of the patients by analyzing their urine and uh, could show that uh, a lower intake is significantly associated with a lower number of vertigo attacks. Um, so uh, that's why I, 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 I stick with, with, with the salt restriction. But... Uh, the, the, the specially processed cereals are, are an option. Maybe. In your opinion, Dr. Gukov, um, about how much percentage of our patients do recover with just lifestyle change of a low salt diet? Um, I would say this would be about a third of the patients, maybe 20 to 30 percent, more or less, although I don't have any precise uh, clinical study uh, in my head about this topic, but this would be my gut feeling. <laughs> From experience. And um, for people with where the condition is extremely bad, where the attacks don't stop, are there other surgical interventions that are being used for Meniere's disease? Um, yes, uh, and uh, in fact, if you look at the different therapies for Meniere's, the only therapeutic option which is evidence-based, uh, in fact, is the ablative therapy. Um, which makes sense because if you destroy a sensory organ, then there will be no more fluctuations uh, of this organ in the future, more or less. Um, so, um, but before before doing an, an ablative uh, therapy, for example, with gentamicin or labyrinthectomy, uh, I'm always offering uh, endolymphatic sac surgery to the patients. Mm, there is a there is a good uh, good uh, foundation uh, of experiences and clinical studies uh, with this uh, method. Uh, the success rate is about uh, 75%, um, although the quality of the trials is not of uh, huge, um, is not very high. But uh, it should be uh, offered, in my opinion, before uh, doing the ablative therapy, which really is irreversible and um, can also have some, some side effects. So I was curious now, because often the disease can turn bilateral and you have decided to do an ablative surgery. What is the choice um, left for um, the practitioner, medical practitioner at that time? Do they choose to do ablative on both, which is just going to result in a very severe dysfunction for patients? Or what do you foresee for that group of people? Well, um, very, very um, important question. Um, once there is uh, 
uh, one side, uh, one ear is uh, ablated uh, by, by therapy, for example, or even by the, by the disease course itself. And, and then this patient develops symptoms on the other side. Um, uh, I would not recommend to, to perform an ablative therapy on the second side as well. Um, there is quite a high risk that there will result uh, the syndrome of the bilateral vestibulopathy, which is uh, much worse than episodic vertigo, because then you have vertigo and bird vision and oscillopsia with every movement that you make, which can be severely uh, disabling. Um, so in this situation, um, uh, we are left with using all the other uh, methods um, except the ablative ones for the, for the second side. From that, I move on to a very chief question, which is very pertinent for all of us. That's the role of vestibular rehabilitation in this population. When do you think is the appropriate time for vestibular rehab in people with Meniere's disease? Um, I don't think I could recommend a specific time point during the disease course. Um, it, it's very variable from, from patient to patient. Um, it can be useful in the, in the or after the acute events, as well as uh, in the later phase of the disease when chronic dysfunction becomes more important and, and more disabling uh, to the patient. Um, I always recommend also to, to, to make exercises even early uh, in the disease course because uh, the patient also has, even if his function recovers after the attack, he is uh, severely distressed in his confidence into his own balance capabilities. And um, to improve this part of the problem, it's very useful to, to start with, uh, with exercises, to, to experience that, okay, my balance is back, I can do this, I can do that, um, and, um, and go on from there. Yeah, in my own personal experience, I have, I agree with you. We have had, um, I personally have treated people with different phases. Some came in early, some have come in later on in life. Uh, in my personal experience, people who are undergoing the acute attack, we usually stop therapy for them. Uh, and then once the attack resolves uh, by either lifestyle changes or if there's medication that has been advised by physicians, we will switch back to doing physical therapy. Uh, when you mentioned that people coming in early or later on, um, how important is the role for managing that acute vertigo attack for that, this group of patients? Uh, how, how important is, is what? I didn't get that acoustically. Um, sorry. Uh, how important is it to uh, reduce that attack in this group of patients? Uh, is the intervention, medical intervention done to make sure that their acute attacks are not as intense or they are um, the amount of attacks that are happening for the patient are reduced? Okay. So what's the chief goal when uh, you are prescribing medication and us as a rehab specialist are trying to uh, see this really fluctuating uh, function of the ear. I see, I see. Um, so basically, all, all, all the different therapies designed for Meniere's disease, uh, if you look at the studies, uh, the, the outcome, the primary outcome is always uh, directed towards the reduction uh, of, of the, 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 the acute uh, spontaneous uh, vertigo attacks. Um, there's very, very little other outcomes who have been uh, closely studied. Um, 
so uh, for the otolaryngologist's perspective, uh, the treatment uh, primarily has, has this goal to reduce the, the, the occurrence and the severity uh, of the vertigo attacks. Um, also, of course, we have to keep in mind the hearing and, and, and the hearing aid um, therapy uh, and so on. And uh, uh, I, there is an analogy there because uh, we know from many as patients uh, being fitted with a hearing aid that they often have big problems, especially in the early phase because of the great fluctuations that appear. So it's very hard to, to, to make a stable uh, fitting of, of the hearing aid if, if the hearing uh, uh, function of the patient is, is, is changing uh, 30, 40 decibel from one day to the other. And uh, uh, I think there is an analogy to, to the vestibular function. Uh, I think it makes it more difficult for the patient to, to really adapt to his uh, new balance uh, function if there are these, these strong fluctuations uh, with the acute attacks. So yes, uh, in short, uh, from the otolaryngologist's uh, perspective, reducing the attacks and maybe as a last resort, uh, if necessary, by ablating the vestibular function is, is the primary goal. Because for many patients in the long run, it's much better concerning uh, their overall quality of life or in the long run to have uh, one, uh, one ablated uh, vestibular system, which they can adapt to, especially with, uh, with vestibular rehab, um, uh, compared to many years of, of spontaneously, unexpectedly recurring vertigo attacks happening out of the blue, making them anxious to leave the house, to withdraw socially and so on. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Gurkov. Um, My pleasure. Absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much today. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group.